I don't think we're living in a moment where the masses of people are polarized. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. I think we're living through a moment where the vocal extremes are increasingly polarized. And what's happening is that they're imposing their very loud closed-mindedness on an exhausted majority. Manu Mio is a young organizer and activist who heads up the largest and fastest growing student movement to bridge our differences called Bridge USA. Manu is the keynote speaker at the Augsburg University Interfaith Symposium later this month. Professor Najiba Saeed is a peacemaker, healer, and scholar who heads up Interfaith at Augsburg University. She's also with us this week to talk about the symposium and the critical need for trust and bridge building in our polarized age. As we celebrate the 18th anniversary of the State of Belief, I want to make sure you are subscribed to the next generation of the State of Belief podcast. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You'll hear this episode in full, as well as recent conversations with Dr. Anathea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, Father Jim Martin, Rain Wilson, Bishop William Barber, Imam Abdullah Antepli, Rabbi Sharon Browse, Tim Alberta, as well as my exclusive interview with Rob Reiner and Dan Partland about their essential new documentary film on Christian nationalism called God and Country. It would really help to have you subscribe, rate, and to tell people you're close to about all you're hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how to do that is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest, Professor Najiba Saeed is executive director of Interfaith at Augsburg University in Minneapolis. On March 7th, Augsburg is hosting an Interfaith Symposium with the theme, Building Trust in Divisive Times. The symposium is an annual invitation to build community, foster collaboration, and create a more caring world. Najiba, welcome to the State of Belief. Well, thank you for doing this for us. You have been at many different academic institutions and have lent your voice to so many wonderful interfaith and faith causes and efforts over the years. You are now at Augsburg University in Minneapolis. Tell me about that and why the Interfaith Symposium this year? Absolutely. This is a Lutheran institution that within the last 15 years has become the most ethnically diverse uh, regional university in the Midwest. So imagine, uh, you know, a population of an institution changing so quickly, uh, being responsive to the local community around it. So just as an example, we're now more than 10% Muslim, probably close to 13 to 15% Muslim. And what's really unique about our Muslim communities around us, we are also in um, a neighborhood that is majority East African Muslim. So both our campus and its location, as well as our student population diversifying, is really a story about Minnesota. It's a story about a state that has the highest per capita 
um, asylum and refugee seekers uh, admitted and into this state. It's a story about Lutheran hospitality. It's a story about the immigrant communities that were always a part of Cedar Riverside, which is the neighborhood that we uh, are in here locally. And ultimately, you know, yesterday we had a really wonderful panel on um, we had a good number of our faculty and staff show up because Ramadan is now in the school year. Since it changes, it goes back 10 days every year. And our Muslim students were able to do a presentation for their faculty and staff and say, this is what Ramadan is like. This is how you can support us. And then I took my interfaith scholars yesterday, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, into our healthcare commons across the street that is housed at one of the uh, largest private um, affordable housing units here in the city of Minneapolis. And it's a mostly Muslim-based community. And they got to hear from a local imam that is a leader on the opioid crisis and a young East African Muslim woman who leads healthcare efforts here in the city. So, you know, that kind of richness of being embedded both in a neighborhood as well as in a very long tradition of both the city and the state um, thinking about issues of um, integration of immigrants, of a Native American population that's also one of the largest in the urban setting, of a Hmong population that's been here for generations now, of a historically African-American Muslim community um, in Minneapolis. I mean, that's that's the story of, of Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, and of Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, it's it is also the story of America. It is the story of a, a place where, um, you know, there is a res- hopefully we can garner a respect for uh, indigenous people while recognizing that new people will be coming in and figuring out how um, that can be uh, a blessing and a harmonious opportunity for people to get to know one another. That's the reason I think that. Um, it's so great that you're at Augsburg and so exciting that we're we're having this interfaith symposium. We went through a lot of thoughts about what should we do this year, and then we landed on the theme of trust. Talk to me about what trust means to you in interfaith work and in the kind of work you just described yeah. in, 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 a, in a neighborhood, in a community, in inter-community work. Talk to me about trust. Well, I think You know, and it's important for folks to know that this was a theme that was picked a year ago, really. It was a theme that um, was particularly, I think, we were concerned, as we know, around the election cycle, the four-year election cycle, the national election cycle. There is a spike in, um, unfortunately, anti-Muslim or Islamophobic speech and acts and anti-Jewish uh, or anti-Semitic, um, anti-Semitic speech as well as hate crimes. And so part of <laughs> the projection into where we thought we would be in March, this was a year ago, was really already recognizing that the threads that hold us together as a country, the capacity for us to sit and engage and have a conversation we're already challenged um, even before everything that has been going on um, since then. And so I just share that with people because I think we were already detecting the need to really address kind of this conversation to say, 
you know, there are these really wonderful opportunities where we do religious literacy, where we learn about different religious traditions, where we do rituals that are, we share our rituals with one another. And there has to be a conversation about what do we do when there is a community, an individual in our community. There's some dynamic where someone is being targeted for hate. Like, what what does that interface, what, what and how do we engage that interfaith space um, around that reality, that lived reality. It's not just a doctrine. It's not just a belief, but it's, you know, there are people for whom their physical, emotional, and other forms of well-being can be challenged. And I think that was um, partly behind this idea of what do you do when trust trust is challenged because it's not just us getting together as different faith, uh, religious, and spiritual and worldview communities to have conversations, it's how do we show up for each other? Mm. And Mm. that has been a big theme in my work is how do you show up for someone when you don't have a benefit? Or even maybe the bigger question, how do you show up for another community, another individual when you may actually lose something? Maybe Mm. you will lose some status. Maybe you will lose some form of power that you perceive to be a loss. Um, And what I think is profoundly important in this moment is it can also be um, that folks are targeted, as we said, for um, hate. It can also be a moment when, in addition to that, we also need to be able to say, am I surrounded with people that are agreeing with me all the time? Am I engaging in interfaith work with segments of communities that have the same perspective? Um, And the harder work is actually, do I have engagement with people with whom I have very profound differences, profound worldview approaches? So that is really the second kind of prong of why I think trust is an Uh important piece. It's probably the biggest deficit we have right now, a trust deficit um, across communities. Um, trust is a word that it almost feels archaic in a way. Like it's not a word that you bring up a lot. It's mostly used, I would say, in the negative. Like I've lost trust. I've lost trust. But I mean, I think the question is, how do we gain trust? And I think that's actually like kind of a um, almost a discipline of gaining trust, of um of trusting others and then also um, helping others trust us and being intentional about what goes into that sort of, it's like a, you know, we talk about bridge building a lot and trust. It seems like trust is the thing that, you know, if you're not doing the strong, I don't even know anything about bridge building, but you know, if you don't, if not doing the strong, like ironwork or, or woodwork that holds up the bridge, then, you know, there's nothing else. And it seems like trust has to be a part of that conversation. You know, I think that that's part of really a larger question. We're in a historical moment where increasingly the trust in governments, the Mm. trust in elections, the trust in institutions, even the trust in institutional um, entities that represent religious communities is really in many ways at a low. Obviously, we can't we don't have polls from, you know, 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. So we, who knows what, who knows if, what we're comparing it to, but from the time that we have collected that kind of data. And I wanted to share that because I think for me, it's not just uh, saying that 
there's a deficit of trust, it's looking at what those causes are. So why are what how have we come to this place? Because I really want to invite people to this conversation to discuss how we've come to this place and how they've come to that place. I don't want this to be, whether it's the symposium or other spaces, to say, you know what, you need to build trust. You need to have social cohesion. Why are we at this place? And I think any kind of engagement and intervention has to say, what are the injustices that people feel have happened? What are the um, what are the marginalizations that, um, let's just give as an example, that students feel on their college campuses? What are the forms of, whether it's hate, discrimination, um, whether it's uh, alienation, what are those sources? Because I think I don't want to put the burden on people who have um, over time. And I think all of us, that's the thing is it's really all of us have some form of mistrust and distrust that has increased uh, for different institutions or entities in our life. You know, and I think this is also a question of saying, when has religion been used for that process? I, right. I don't think that's really important because we could enter into the conversation and say, you know what the problem is? People don't have trust, therefore it leads to um, uh, an inability to engage in conversations against polarization Um and to me, the way that we need to ameliorate that is not to just say, come to the table, get to know each other. My question is, well, why did why why, why did you did walk away trust? from the table? Yeah, yeah. why did you walk away yeah. from the table? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't a good table. Maybe it wasn't yeah, separate, right. really. Yeah, yeah. I do think at this point there's also some narratives that people have inherited that they haven't actually experienced, but because they've been collectively... Um, put forth, it just becomes part of the water. Um, and I think the internet can do a great deal of that where there is like, you know, whether it's QAnon or other sources where where just the, you know, there are narratives where, you know, that, that you read and you get this information and every day you're confronted with, you know, whatever. They're out to get us. They're out to get us. How do we circle the wagons? How do we, you know, I mean, and and some of that is can be based in truth, but it also can be like an overwhelming narrative, which creates a kind of it almost cements an us versus them mentality um, that doesn't allow for even the kind of conversations you're talking about. Like, why do we why do we have this initial mistrust? And then what might we do? It just cements a kind of like zero sum game, like someone's going to win, someone's going to lose and we got to win. Absolutely. And I think that's where the conflict resolution background um, that I work on is we talk about something called positional bargaining. So I'll give an example of a parent and a child. Um, you know, it's funny is before I had children, I used to do conflict resolution training and I'm for parents. And now I say, whatever I taught before, please, please abrogate. <laughs> it's, it's, now that I have kids, what I actually teach is very um, contextualized in real life. But a parent wants the child to be home at 10 p.m. The child wants to come home at midnight. That's their position. How do we get to their underlying interests? The child wants autonomy. The parent knows they have accountability and responsibility for this child. How the child may also want, um, you know, to have um, relationships with friends. 
and expand those. The parent may be concerned about their own reputation. What is it like in their community, for instance, to have a child that's seen out late? So when I've engaged in these kinds of conflict resolution processes, when people move from the position, what do we get out of a 10 p.m. versus midnight? Maybe we get 11 o'clock. But when we move to from the position to the interest and we share why and what we need, then the parent and the child could come up with solutions where maybe the child is given two weeks where they come home at 10.30, and if they continue, then it can expand and go later. I use a really simple example, but I've seen this in the work that we do between communities as we articulate, or entities, as we articulate positions, but it's the mm-hmm. trust that gets us to the interest. We're going to get even more hardened in our positions in the midnight versus 10 p.m. We get more hardened as trust deteriorates. So Mm. to me, the bridge building is not just about the reality of us engaging and having a relational way to relate. It's about also really truthfully the power in the room and the negotiation and the capacity to address the real interests of individuals and communities that are at the table. And if there isn't an ability to have some process in which we address um, how decisions are made collectively, what are the forms of agency that different groups have at the table, and how does that produce um, a collective consensus? I don't use the word common ground anymore. I say consensus because that means we've agreed (laughs) That Mm. these things are good for us, Mm. but we don't necessarily share everything in common. So what is our negotiated consensus? So I wanted to put that out there because I think we can sometimes in our heavy emphasis on relational um, work, think about the results being around people getting along at the interpersonal level. We also need to address the community and structural forms of negotiation that people bring into any table and you know do they feel that they can articulate what those are in terms of interest and can we come up with far more enriched durable negotiated modalities of coexistence Mm. thank you we're in this moment and we want to talk about trust in this moment. And so we are going to have a, a symposium and I'm very excited. It's Building Trust in Divisive Times. Tell me about why um, you reached out to Manu Mil, uh in order to see if he might be our keynote. Absolutely. So we're in a moment in our history of this country where trust in so many forms of institutions has been eroding. And particularly in an election cycle, um, it seemed important to have a conversation, not just from a faith-based lens, but to extend it into the very many forms of polarization, not just difference, but um, polarization and alienation uh, across different uh, divides. And in particular, I was very much interested in Manu's work because, you know, there are a lot of folks that are um, that develop theories around human contact theory and why it's important to get together. There are people that engage in uh, research on this topic, and it's very descriptive. What's really powerful about the work that Manu does is it also addresses 
the fact that polarization and separation and alienation between communities is also often tied to uh, where and how people identify politically. And Manu's work allows us to think about how spirituality, religion, and worldview are at the table in a time, especially when increasingly the sort of the the segment of the population in our um, country that identifies unaffiliated or non-religious is growing. So it seemed important to be able to not just address the in an election year in an election year to address the political differences, but to be able to think about how do some of the principles that we embody in interfaith work extend all forms of um, sorts of differences. And so Manu has been able to create spaces where people talk about religious values or talk about values based on a religious perspective and engage individuals that may not have just a religious framing for their values. So I think that's really important. Really um, important. It's hugely really. important. I mean, it's 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 almost like among the first three questions I get, you know, as like kind of a interfaith guy, uh, if if uh, if I were to use shorthand, is like, well, what about the people who don't have any, you know, adhere to any particular religious tradition? It's a really it's a it's a very important question, and I love that we are going to be able to, you know, have have an insight into how that can factor in because it must factor in for our work to be meaningful. So tell me, um, how can people who are listening to this podcast uh, have the benefit of listening in and, and learning and being part of the symposium of at Augsburg, even if they don't happen to be in Minneapolis? Um, they can just go to the Augsburg Interfaith website, and we will be sharing with people um, a live stream of the event so that Wonderful. they can plug in. And if you if you miss the live stream, it'll also be posted. And uh, we're really excited to share this uh, conversation. And I would say really, particularly with Manu, it's not just who he works with, but the fact that he's working on college campuses around the country building these chapters of his organization that, you know, I think a lot of times we talk about universities and one of the things that impresses me about him is that he's out there actually doing the work. And so the lessons that he shares are not based on something that he teaches, yeah, you know, yeah, or made up it, in his head. It's exactly, actually comes out of his made, practice. They're, yeah. You know, yeah. they're from practice and they're from practice in this moment. Yeah. This time, and I think that's to me so important because I've always tried to make sure that anything we do within our interfaith engagement is based on sound scholarship and sound practice. So I'm yeah. really excited to be able to share this with the world. If you're not in Minneapolis, please do uh, check out the slash interfaith uh, website, and we will be sharing out. The link and like I said, if you miss it, we post it. And uh, this is an annual event, so look for it next year as well. Put it on your calendar. Uh, you can travel <laughs> next year, but this it. year, this year you can tune in. <clears throat> Professor Najiba Saeed is a peacemaker, healer, scholar who heads up Interfaith at Augsburg. She has so much 
to do right now in this time of discord and division. But she also is so inspiring. And I want to thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief. And I just appreciate you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you for being a thought partner in this work all along and for being on the host committee of this event. We're excited to have you here in the heartland in the upper Midwest in Minneapolis. Up next, Bridge USA CEO Manu Mil, who will be delivering the keynote at the Augsburg University Interfaith Symposium on March 7th. You can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And better yet, make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Hey there, Curious Minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The keynote speaker at this year's Augsburg University Interfaith Symposium on March 7th is Bridge USA CEO Manu Meal. The work he's engaged in to lessen divides and foster communication on our campuses couldn't possibly be more timely. And of course, at the core of this work is rebuilding trust, which is the theme of this year's symposium. Manu Meal, welcome to the State of Belief. Paul, thank you so much for so much for having me. I appreciate being here. So I want to find out a little bit more about you. Where did you come from and how did you end up here? Like, this is not necessarily on your, like, okay, when I'm doing my vision board, does anybody do that? I don't know. Like when I'm <laughs> eight, I'm like, I want to be going around the country having really difficult conversations with people and bringing people together. How did you get here? What's your background? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I ask myself that on a on a daily basis, and my mom is still wondering. And and I think uh, 
uh, I've picked the the fruitless task as as you understand much better than I do of of trying to get people to work together, which which oftentimes feels like feels like a Sisyphean task. Um, so for some context, I was a pre med student. I had no interest in politics, democracy, any of this stuff. Um, I, I was sort of just doing what uh, my parents had outlined for me and what I thought was the natural thing to do. I, where, I moved where was around that? A lot. Can I just can I can I ask yeah. you like where did you grow up? What part of the country did you grow up? All in? over. So I grew up all over the East Coast, and in oh. fact, I was born in New Jersey. But right after that, I I lived in Indiana Village with my grandparents while my parents lived in the U.S. for a couple of years. I came back. I then moved and lived in you know Staten Island. Uh, I went to high school around a town called Lexington, Massachusetts, and then finally, uh, because of because of college, I finally came out west, and so. That's sort of my my trajectory in terms of where I came from, all over the place. Yeah, but then you yeah. you you were you here you are you're doing pre med, which you know yep. if I'm going to lean into a stereotype, a very good <laughs> it Indian, works. It you works. know I you know that's that's you were doing the right thing, uh, mm-hmm. and and then what happened? Oh yeah, no I I I um. I, I committed uh, serious uh, sin starting at ninth grade <laughs> when I went off the well-worn path. You know, um, so here's what happened. So in February of 2017, I was at UC Berkeley. And as you know, UC Berkeley has a long history of protest and it's got a long history of of, of sort of pushing the bounds. And so February 2nd, 2017, we had uh, a speaker by the name of Milo Yiannopoulos invited to campus. Now, Milo is, is sort of this... Um, right-wing provocateur, uh, but it doesn't matter that he's actually right-wing. What actually matters is that he sort of loves to just provoke. That's his thing. And we know folks like that across the political spectrum. And so he shows up to campus. And I remember I was walking back from my math seminar and I hear helicopters flying overhead and they're shouting the distance. Now, as a typical UC Berkeley day, that's not that atypical. You know, we have a great relationship with protest. Uh, And yet what happened was that I walked past this cafe and said the window was shattered and said CNN, UC Berkeley students protest free speech. And the crazy thing about that was the television crew that was actually filming that CNN segment was staying right next to me. And it was sort of the breaking of the fourth wall between when you feel like you've been spectating, you know, politics, democracy all your life to when you feel like you're suddenly participating. And so the next day, me and some random people who are now some of my best friends, we were like, OK, you know, campus is hurting. People are struggling. Um and and it seems like nobody's just having a conversation. And so naturally, because it's Berkeley, we set up what we called a therapy circle. And we basically got college students, people that invited Milo, people that had protested Milo. We got them all together in this space called a Bridge Berkeley. And from there, it turned into a conversation and turns out, as you know very well from your work in faith, that when you give people of radically different perspectives the opportunity to hear each other in a constructive space, you've realize that we very much overestimate the capacity of our differences to rip us apart. And we very much underestimate our capacity to actually see the commonality. And so that was sort of the starting point. And and from there, it turned into Bridge USA. Wow. I mean, that is like, it's an extraordinary message. It's one that I think all of us need to hear because we, you know, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I can get very animated about the difference and uh and you know and i think for good reason but what you're doing is actually imagining a constructive way forward um that at least allows people to humanize one another because as we as we know like demonization and dehumanization 
um, that creates a pathway for some really mm-hmm. terrible actions to follow. And so I just yes. really appreciate that. So so how did it go from there? I mean, so you're yeah. still on a pre-med. You're still doing the right thing. This is this mm-hmm. is a side gig. Yeah. How did it, how, what, what was the process like for you to kind of begin to say, actually, this feels something in my essence is calling me to this work? Yeah, you know, in other words, what what really set me off the cliff? So, 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 so I didn't use those. You words. know, right, right, right now we're approaching the cliff, right? And and the cliff is steep, and and there's rocks down the distance, and uh, I finally just had to make the leap. Um, and the way it happens is that naturally, you know, I was already sort of starting to think about the value of this work. I think inherently, and I think I actually relate this to my grandparents. My grandparents. On my mom's side of the family, we never were into politics, but we've always had a streak of community service and uh, and doing and contributing to the people around us. And my grandfather raised me like that. My mom was like that. On my dad's side, it's similar. And I think there was just something internal. And I'd also done uh, uh, debate throughout high school and, and middle school, and I'd gone to all these different places. And my entire childhood was about just adapting to, to new environments. I mean, to make a friend every two years. You have to sort of sacrifice your sense of, you know, self-importance to to give other people the space to let you in. And so that that was a constant. And I think this vehicle of bridging differences, and again, importantly, I would emphasize not compromise, but understanding. I think people oftentimes conflate being in a space as sacrificing our sense of belief. That's not it. And you know this very well doing interfaith work. It's not that you and I decrease our relevance or sense of self to a certain God. It's that we create space for others. And I just love that work. And so what happened was I, I just kept doing it. And importantly, and this is the secret, was I made my best friends doing this work. And this is something that you can apply. Forget bridge, forget whatever. This is about any entrepreneurial venture, any community-based venture, um, any company, anything you're ever doing. If you make great relationships in the process, it really keeps you going, it gives you a sense of purpose. And this gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a sense of, you know, I, I feel this deeply. And as you know, building anything is very difficult. And so as we kept scaling and we kept growing, in fact, my co-founders, some of them still live with us. You know, I still, my 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 other CEO, he's in that room, even though we have a team now all over the country. And, um, you know, it's a true privilege to pursue a journey where uh, you're doing what you love with people that you like. And the hope is that you're trying to just push the push the needle needle on the the betterment spectrum a little bit forward. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting the location that you're doing yep. this in, which um, having worked a lot on college campuses and loving the academy and loving um, the college campus life. Um, right now, we're in a moment where college campuses are very suspect by people all across the the spectrum where. Um, people are wondering what's the value of the, of college, and if college is like actually a um, a, a bad place for sure. young people to go. And uh, so I'm just curious, how does being on college campuses themselves impact the way you approach the work? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great question because I think that college campuses are a very unique environment. In fact, I think in some ways college campuses are, I think, 
the forward weather vane for what's to come. You know, 2017, when that protest had happened, that was actually the start of everything you're seeing today. I mean, that 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 was we're intensely talking about critical race theory. We're intensely talking about inclusion, diversity. And now those are all things that are front and center. And so I think, in fact, college campuses are predictive of what happens. And I think the people that can figure out how to navigate a college campus environment and do it in a way where you're actually creating a learning environment for students, I think is incredibly successful. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is is that, um, and this is more general, this is actually beyond campuses, but you know, in any community you look at, whether it's a college campus, a high school, a congregation, a local community association, um, people will say, man, that must be an incredibly divisive space. You must have people with really strong beliefs showing up and they're all in a melting pot. Does it actually work out? And interestingly enough, when I'm traveling on campuses and we're working with their students, I can count on my fingers how many times I've actually met the really loud vocal people that have a temperament that excludes your ability to say what's on your mind. And in fact, this I think gets to the core of the issue is that I don't think we're living in a moment where the masses of people are polarized. I think we're living through a moment where the vocal extremes are increasingly polarized. And what's happening is that they're imposing their very loud closed-mindedness on an exhausted majority. And, and when you look at this phenomenon on campuses, most students you talk to, they're like, I'm scared to say what's on my mind. I could be on the left, right, doesn't matter. Blue, green, up, down. Uh, you talk to faculty, you talk to administrators. People are just walking on eggshells. And so, in fact, in some ways, yes, my work is to bridge differences, but in other ways, I think it's actually much more of a marketing question. It's a scale question. It's about elevating and giving a voice to what I think is actually the silent demand. And the last thing I'll just say is that campuses, I think, are at this turning point where the next nine to 18 months, I think you're going to see a lot of college presidents take the next step. And the next step being that I think colleges have spent the last eight years figuring out how to be diverse and how to be inclusive which is very important. But as you know, when you build a dinner table and you invite everybody to the dinner table, it's not natural that everybody's just gonna have peaceful dinner together. Where's the part of DEI where you actually train people to stay at the dinner table and come back? That's what bridging is. I think it's this next step. And I think it's gonna be suffused throughout campuses over the next couple of months and years. And, and I think that you know, if, if we think about college in general and campuses as a place where we can learn how to be good people, but also good citizens, good participants in democracy, that lesson is so valuable because then you take it wherever you go. And that was, you know, when I, when I would talk about the value of, um, my work at Princeton university when I was there and the interfaith work that we were doing. And I was saying, that what we're trying to do is create better leaders uh, mm-hmm. who are who are prepared for the leading of what we'll, the 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 country in the 21st century will require. It's very in line with the mission of Princeton, but then broadly higher education. And I think that's like that. I think that's why what you're doing is important. Is that it's it's about creating people who can be leaders in whatever community, whatever field they're going into. And I think mm-hmm. that that's just, it's really important. And 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 the proximate nature of ourselves in university or college settings, being near one another so that we're, you know, I think there's yep. something, I mean, not yep. everybody goes to like a, um, uh, resident colleges, but many places do have residencies and it allows you to actually be in 
contact and see people doing super mundane things like being on a sports team or playing chess or all these things that when we have visions of the people who we don't like, they're always doing something nefarious rather than doing something that you might like too. And uh, and the opportunities for engagement in that way in college campuses is really important. You know, there's um, I think there's there's two spaces left in the country where you see a natural mixing of people that are very different than each other. Um, I think those two spaces that are left are the workplace and the educational environment. That's it. Um, where else do you see natural, spontaneous difference actually coming together? The, the one of my biggest fears is that, you know, or not fears, but apprehensions and things that motivate me is that the United States purports to be a melting pot but where's the melting actually happening? And and importantly, is the melting actually successful? You know, in 2045, the United States is going to be the most diverse democracy in the history of society. It's going to be a multiracial majority minority country. Now, some people might say that's great. Some people might be terrified. Some people might say, uh, I don't know if that's a good thing. Some people might say that I think that's very ambitious. The fact is that in the history of humanity, this notion that people that are very different than each other, heavily armed, trying to make it work, is is not something that occurs. And yeah. I think in some ways, yes, it's about college campuses. Yes, it's about bridging differences. Yes, it's about getting people together. Sure. But one of the things that gives me the hope to keep going is having perspective. When you think about the history of humanity on thousand-year timescales, uh, the United States is going to be 250 years old in 2026, which is a, a drop in the bucket as it comes to the lifespans of empires and ancient uh, civilizations. And on top of that, you're going to have the most diverse experiment that's ever happened. I see our job, the people that are doing this work, as essentially being on the vanguard of trying to equip people with the capacity to pull off the craziest social experiment that's ever been tried. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to college campuses, the reason why I frame it in those terms is because I think students are looking for a motivating endeavor. And oftentimes I think our work comes off as broccoli. You know, let's let's hold hands and sit together. That's important. I love that. That excites me. But somebody that hates broccoli, I, I don't know if that works out for them. <laughs> uh, I I think, you know, I, I think, you know, what what we're what I, what I heard out of what you were saying was like democracy is at stake. And and we have to get this right, and and we have to find ways uh, of of being but, but in I'll community just, with. Yeah. But if I could just add one piece, is it's not just democracy at stake. I think that that's 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 one way to put it, and I think it's an important way to put it. I think it only speaks to one half the population, if we put it that way. Um, I also think that the reason why I don't like to frame it in that way is because it almost puts people on the back foot. It's defense. Democracy at stake, we got to fall back and defend it. My argument is that what we're trying to pull off is not only totally expected, but it's never happened before. So it's not that democracy at stake, it's that what we're trying to build is impossibly unique. And so it, it for me, I, I think that's a rhetorical difference. As you understand through congregational work, the way you frame a challenge, I think suddenly gives yeah. people the sense of, all right, we got we got something that we're getting on. Yeah. Well, the, the, the tagline for Interfaith Alliance, where I, the president now is achieving democracy together. So it's very much forward right. looking and a project that is 
that we're undertaking that has not uh, ever been completely ach- achievable, and it may never be completely achievable, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's uh, re- referencing Baldwin's uh, talking about achieving our country and, and what that could look like. The, let's get back to the Augsburg uh, Symposium and the theme, Building Trust in Divisive Times. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about trust in your work and what that means to you. Frankly, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. I think I'm still figuring it out. Um, uh, I have like a waxy poetic answer to that question. Um, but it. when it comes to the to the deep sense of it, um, you know, as I'm 25, uh, the deepest relationships I have are some of my close friends and my family. I just have yet to figure out uh, what trust looks like as it relates to people across multiple timescales and, and difference. But from a theoretical and philosophical standpoint, I think trust is preconditional to democracy. I don't think that you have a democracy without trust. I think that when it comes to the symposium at Augsburg University, and I'm really excited to be there, one, because it's in Minnesota, and two is because uh, uh, why would you not want to go to Minnesota in March? And I think, importantly, my my good friend uh, and some of our colleagues are also in Minnesota, and so very excited to be there. I'm grateful to them for having us. And one of the things that we'll discuss there is that you know, we talk about the importance of democracy. We talk about the importance of voting. We talk about, you know, the value of leadership. Um, but ultimately, if you and I as neighbors don't trust each other, why would I ever think that it makes sense for me to participate in a political system that gives you the equal voice that I should have? Mm. It makes no sense to me. And in some ways, uh, on campuses especially, the biggest challenge to our work is that bridging, talking to people, pluralism, interfaith, whatever it is that we want to call it, is not essential. That it's not first priority. First priority is justice. First priority is 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 freedom of speech. Our first priority is, you know, making sure that uh, uh, I've got, you know, this policy or that policy out. Um, but I think we have to figure out a way to frame this work so that it's not only essential, but it's an a priority condition to our society succeeding. Mm. And I think that's what trust is is relevant as it, as it compares to what we're doing so if people yeah. don't trust each other why would i ever vote for people in that system right well i'm, I'm just thinking about your origin story at berkeley and somehow you trusted the people to come together to have a conversation and i i'm i i just think there's something it's because i was incredibly naive Oh, yeah, but you did I it. I was incredibly naive. Yeah, so, okay, so naivete is one of the building blocks of trust. But I do I've never think done this before. Like, there's something about, um, you know, not falling into what we we think we know about everything. Trust is an exercise in some ways in faith uh, that that it what seems impossible is is possible. So, uh, um, you know, we're, we're going to figure it out and there will be a link to the live stream so that you can hear Manu actually figure it out in real time <laughs> at the symposium. Now, let, let me ask you this. Uh, we like to talk to everyone on our show about hope. And yeah. that means so many different things to so many different people, but it's worth talking about. And I am curious, first of all, do you come out of a religious tradition that um, continues to inspire your uh, work? Uh, I don't. I have no sense of what that might be, but you, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah. Uh, so in fact, we actually, I have a podcast called The Hopeful Majority. And the reason why it's called The Hopeful Majority is because, again, I think that uh, that most people are are united around a certain temperament and a mindset and behavior. And the question is that that we have to figure out how to elevate them. And I think faith is an essential component of that. Um, as it relates to my religious tradition, I come from India. My family's ethnically from India, and we have a very deep Hindu tradition, specifically the sect within Hinduism called Arya Samaj. It's, it's, it's. Um, I would, I would relate it, uh, to to Protestantism as it comes to Christianity, the the complete other end of the Catholic spectrum. Um, and that's how you can think about it. And me personally, I'm somebody that, um, uh, believes in God. I believe in faith. Uh. But as you know, as a younger person, uh, my faith is not as strong as I'd like it to be. And part of it, this actually goes to hope. You know, once you build something or work on something and you find purpose in the material world, after a while, the the well of motivation runs dry. Like you hit bottom of that well. You hit the bottom of the purpose. You can say, you know, I care about it because of all the books I read. You get you get down one level layer deeper in your well of purpose. Then you say, well, I love the friends that I made through this work. You get deeper into the well of purpose. By the end of it, you're, th there's still this like gap. There's still this hole. It's like, um, is any of this going to really matter? Is, the, is there any uh, sense of, of real impact here? Well, what is the point of any of this? You can even teach yourself perspective and get deeper into that well. But then there's a point where you hit rock bottom. And my theory of the case for myself, this is me personally, is that I think for me to increase the depth of my well of purpose and motivation and desire to keep going that I'm going to have to strengthen my faith because I think that ultimately uh, people since humans started have have found faith in and purpose in, in God and so that's my very long-winded answer to to a very short question no and I really appreciate it uh, you know in the end, I know you're doing this work uh, with Bridge USA for the money because uh, you're making so much yeah, money. Yeah, exactly. You know, so and, much money and, that I, I'm living with four roommates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're doing it for the fame. Maybe you can yeah. just, I, you know, I, I want to make sure like I, you have a chance to talk about Bridge USA and, you know, the sure. mission of it and how people can connect with it. Absolutely. I mean, so the work that we talked about in the beginning uh, with Bridge Berkeley starting because we had the speaker come to campus leading to massive protests and then people wanting to have a space for dialogue. Essentially what Bridge USA does is it creates college and high school chapters just like Bridge Berkeley across the country. And our objective is to figure out how we can empower young people, colleges, high schools, recent graduates to equip and understand and believe that we have to have these skills and temperament to actually build the society to bridge our differences to talk across lines of conversation. And the last thing I'll say about bridge is that for the longest time, Paul, people used to ask us, you know, is this about left, right? Is it about compromise? Is this about ideology? And uh, what we found over the last three, four years, building college chapters across the country is that uh, you come across enough people and you see that, you know, we have students from the very far left to the students to the very far right. We got students in the center, we got students center left, center right. This is not an ideological question, this being us trying to build a movement, a coalition of people that are focused on bridge building. I think there's a y-axis to our political divide, and that y-axis is the axis of temperament, behavior. What unites all of these students across the country is not what they believe, but how they believe. And I think that the coalition, the political coalition of the future, 
I think the, the key to winning elections, the key to uniting people across the board is somebody that can figure out how to effectively and charismatically articulate the way forward to building this democracy is to unite around how we engage. Because how, I think, is a prerequisite to what. You can talk all you want about the policies you care about, but unfortunately, the way that the system is currently built and the way that our democracy functions, it's on a backswing because of our polarizing cycle. And so that's what Bridge is trying to do, is is trying to empower and equip the next generation of young people across the board to try and embody that temperament. Mm. What is the website, and and in case people want to learn more? Sure, it's bridgeusa.org to find more about Bridge. If you are a, a faculty member, if you're a college administrator, uh, you can go on our website, you can fill out a form. If you've got a student in mind, if you're a student, you can go on the website and get involved. If you're a parent and you've got kids, you can get involved. Um, if you're in high school, you can get involved. So there's a bunch of ways that you can actually get engaged. But the key is that we're trying to find people that have had enough and want to say that there's a new way to build. And that is our bridging way, our, our interfaith way, our depolarizing way. Um, and then our podcast is called The Hopeful Majority. And the entire idea behind The Hopeful Majority is that, you know, one is it, it plays off of our past politics. You had the moral majority of the silent majority. Uh, there's a political element to it. But the second part is that I think, again, most people in the country united around this temperament. I've I've yet to meet, you know, when I walk down the street, I, I very rarely actually run into the Twitter monsters, you know, mm. um, uh, it's it's this the polar problem of the United States is is I don't think one of great divide but great misunderstanding and I think uh, our job is to figure out how to elevate that hopeful majority. So every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Manu Mio co-founded and is today the CEO of the fastest growing campus-based dialogue initiative, Bridge USA. He is a popular public speaker and host of the Hopeful Majority podcast. All of this landed him on the Forbes 30 under 30 list a couple of years ago. And he's only 25 now, so do the math. And it also brings him to the Augsburg University Interfaith Symposium as the keynote speaker on March 7th. That keynote will be live streamed and we will link the registration page from stateofbelief.com. Manu, thank you so much for being with us here today on the State of Belief. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your questions. Uh, Appreciate everybody listening. And importantly, I'm excited to be in Augsburg. I'll see you in Minnesota. Please be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We need your help to keep making The State of Belief. Become a partner in this crucial work with a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And please share what you're getting out of this show with the people in your networks. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going on Facebook and Instagram with the handle at stateofbelief. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with best-selling author, national speaker, and public historian Jamar Tisby, who appears in the new Christian nationalism documentary, God and Country. His books include The Color of Compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. 
I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.